You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of highlights from our 2020 Chargeback University with guests from Microsoft, PaySafe, and Payometry. Very early on, as lockdown was starting, a lot of uh, retail customers, sorry, retail uh, stores saw a big upsurge as people panic bought. Um, Other uh, people that have done well are people who are selling, you know, uh, health and beauty products uh, uh, because of gloves and sanitary aids such as um, gel wash for the hands and so forth. So there are some people that are doing very well um, and that's to be expected, but there still remains some you know, even at the this is a top MCCs and increases. You can see half of those are still going down by up to 10%. Uh, you know, car sellers for obvious reasons. You know, selling cars is not a priority for people. Um, so overall, we saw a 38% drop in acquiring. Um, I would say probably in PaySafe, 80% of our business is in card present or you know retail type scenarios. Um, and almost all of that 38% was a drop in those card present merchants. Uh, next page, please. Can we go to the next slide? Yeah, perfect. Um, so here you can see that there are some differences depending on the sector that we're looking at. If you look at um, lodging hotels, um, the you know travel sector, it's dropped off significantly and hasn't really recovered at all. Um, in Eating places, restaurants, they continue to be closed, the same thing we've seen. Chiropractors, for obvious reasons, they can't uh, do their trade. They've, they've seen a significant drop off. Um, and also the tourist and attractions. Um, there are some though where there are significant differences. So if you look at uh, food stores, there was a massive panic buy initially, and then everybody locked up. And so it dropped off significantly. But now, obviously, people have to go out to the house to buy their groceries. That's almost increased back to normal levels. Uh, so that's quite an interesting pattern. It's, you'd expect to see it, but it's it's nice to see it in graphical form. Um, car and truck dealers, as uh, they've, they've hit their bottom, it looks as though they're bottomed out and are starting to slowly recover. They've got a very long way to go. Uh, the same applies to uh, cable and pay television services um, increasing as people obviously are working and living from home more. Next slide, please. Sean, this is Don. Do you, do you yeah. see that going across the board? Because it looks like all of them have kind of bounced a little bit. Do you see that across the board or is that still too early? There there has been a slight bounce. I would say, you know, it hit 38% down that was the, that was the floor it's now still 20 to 25 percent down but there has been a slight recovery but nothing like what we would need to go back to what we've got normal and it's very likely that you know a lot of these merchants 20 to 25 percent of them um aren't going to survive um you know this uh, this uh, covid um issue because you know, they're, they're in businesses that rely on footfall that's very heavy. So even if you open up restaurants, again, you're going to have to have social distancing. It may not be profitable for them to stay in business. So it's, it's uh, very sad for many sectors across the board. So you've also seen some that kind of took off in the beginning and have somewhat leveled off, I guess. Do we, can, do we see that as changing? You know, we talk about the new normal do we see that as changing? Uh, people are online to stay, so to speak? Um, there are some sectors uh, which have turned incredibly well, um, and they tend to be the higher risk sectors. Um, so, you know, things like uh, adult um, uh, gambling, uh, even nutraceuticals um, have done very well and continue to perform, perform ex- extremely well. Uh, there is a challenge there, though, because you know, most banks and processes that uh, process for those types of merchants will have to have a balanced portfolio. And by a balanced portfolio, that means lots of low risk mainstream businesses, exactly the types of businesses that have been affected badly um, during this crisis. Um, so it's important if you are processing a se- in a sector that is seen as high risk from a chargeback perspective, um, that you have a chat with your um, acquirer. Don't just assume because you're having lots of trade that everything's going well because 
it may be that the risk appetite of that acquirer has dropped because their levels of low risk volume have dropped. So it's something to bear in mind, although it, at the moment, well, those merchants are in very well, um, they could see changes in risk appetite from their existing acquirers. Um, other things that the acquirers have done is um, in credit risk. So travel industry, for instance, where there's been a significant hit, lots of future delivery in that sector. Um, a lot of customers haven't been able to go on the travels that they've booked. They're charging back. That's creating credit risk for the acquirers and sending some merchants insolvent. You'll have seen there are some insolvencies already starting in the sector. Um, that's going to make it very difficult for that sector when we do get into a recovery stage to find processing unless there's some way of them securitizing uh, that future delivery risk, whether it's through an escrow facility or you know reserves potentially from the acquirers, but some acquirers may just be too reluctant to re-enter. Um, oh. Where, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's interesting. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no worries. So um, another thing we've seen is acquirers where they've seen opportunities. So you know merchants who are selling things in high demand now, such as um, you know, hand gels or gloves, uh, that they've increased the amount of traffic they, they will process for that customer. And in some cases, they've reduced fees as well to encourage that volume. Um, nevertheless, so across the board, there is a significant increase in, in chargebacks from future delivery merchants. Um, the other thing that's um, added some complications, and um, oddly, in some of the sectors that I mentioned earlier, so for instance, in nutraceuticals, there's been lots of new rules that have come out of both Visa and MasterCard, uh, targeting specifically trial continuity. Now, trial continuity you might recognize um, as you know how book clubs used to, to work, um, how um, you know online membership used to work. We have a very low price entry where you have a trial period, whether it's free or low priced for a period of maybe 30 days. And then after that, you start to be billed at the regular amount. Um, that method of trial continuity billing has been used widely across lots of different sectors for a long period of time. But last year in April, MasterCard said that if a tangible product was being sold by that methodology, and that tended to be the case with a lot of nutraceutical merchants, that additional um, rules would be coming into play. Now, those rules effectively require that once the consumer has passed their initial trial period, that an email would go out to the cardholder saying, if you wish to continue, click here. So they actually had to positively opt in to that billing. Now, historically, the billing would just be automatic and continue, and people may or may not notice that this happened. Um, but in this case, the consumer had to effectively request to be rebuilt. That led to a significant change in the volumes that we saw on merchants that sold tangible products by the trial continuity uh, on MasterCard. Um, MasterCard historically would have been about 35 to 40% of all card transactions in those merchants. It's now closer to 20%, so quite a significant drop. It's almost a 50% drop in MasterCard volumes in those sectors. And this April, uh, Visa came out wow. with their equivalent rules. Um, now, Visa didn't take quite a, as a draconian as, uh, an attack on uh, those merchants as, as MasterCard did, but nevertheless, there were additional checks and balances in place. But the main difference with Visa's rule is they didn't limit it to tangible products. Any merchant that sells via trial continuity, so that's where the initial bill amount is less than the recurring ones thereafter, had to send uh, additional notices to cardholders telling them that their billing was coming up. And as of April next year, the descriptor on the first rebill um, that goes after the trial period will also change to say end of trial or trial end. Um, so there's some additional challenges there for some merchants because they may not be able to have what we call dynamic descriptor per transaction. So this is where the That's descriptor quite that significant. It's very significant, and it's going to be a real challenge for a lot of these merchants. Um, and so uh, that, I think that's why they've left it an, an additional year. But if, for merchants who are in trial continuity, it's worth checking with your acquirer to make sure they are able to give you the ability to do changes in descriptors by next April. So you have a bit of lead time here, um, but you don't want to be caught uh, out when, when April comes and that requirement comes in. It's worth talking to your requires sure. to see how you can build that. 
Um, generally speaking, though, across the board, I would say um, you know business confidence is is extremely low in in most sectors, and we have seen, uh, as I say, some insolvencies, and that obviously results in unemployment. We've seen the figures on the news uh, of the rises in unemployment. So. Um, unfortunately, not a lot of positivity out there, unless you're in one of those high-risk sectors. There's a, a lot going on. So, the future. Um, opportunities. Um, it's more than likely that um, acquirers and payment processors are going to uh, suffer financially as a result of these drops in, in volumes that they're seeing that results in a drop of their income. Uh, they may have some uh, redundancies and layoffs or even furlough some members of staff, but what will certainly happen is uh, an acceleration in the, um, the M&A activity in this sector. Um, in acquiring and card processing, businesses have always grown through acquisition, and I, I think that this is a time that many of them will see opportunities to buy up some of their smaller competitors. Um, as I mentioned, some sectors are booming. If you can differentiate yourself, off, uh, you know, change to online, uh, if you were in you know, card present uh, retail before, then there is opportunity here as well. Because businesses are suffering, because they've closed down, the market has shrunk. Therefore, you can become a bigger player in that market if you grasp those opportunities in the right way. So there's definitely some, um, some chances there for real entrepreneurs to come up with new ways of doing businesses. Um, risks, obviously we're in the middle of the, or just getting over the first wave in, in Europe, uh, there is uh, talk that there would be a second wave as winter comes, so businesses should be preparing for that risk and you know this is, you know, so risk has not necessarily played a large part in many um, businesses um, historically, now pretty much every business is talking about risk. Um, I, I come from a, a risk background in acquirers and acquirers have always had a risk department but now it's it's very important that businesses think about these potentials of future issues, uh, what they do for dis disaster recovery and so forth. Um, and then question um so first i will say i don't know that any industry has been ready for the chargeback situations that they've confronted um and and definitely this is going to and i think you'll get into this later um in this presentation this has this will create a shift in consumer behavior that probably is going to be uh it's going to stick around for a long time so if we take a look at you know some of the behaviors now on the transaction side um there a lot of, you know, some of the change is contributing to the backlash in chargebacks. Um, and, you know, two things that you mentioned, the um, increase in BOPUS, um, move to omni-channel. So that means merchants are starting to, well, starting. With COVID-19, they've had no other choice, right? In order to stay in business, then they're allowing curbside pickup. Uh, consumers can now order online through apps. Um, restaurant chains that have never before um, allowed order takeout are that's their entire business um, new apps getting created with virtually no opportunity to pilot or test um, are being launched immediately and two of the problems that are associated with this you know fast migration to an omni-channel world especially with merchants who you know are not experts in this they haven't I think in a traditional environment, when you roll into, you know, having an app, uh, doing curbside pickup, changing the way that things are processed, you know, you would probably take three to six months, maybe even a year for a proper rollout, make sure that the support model is in place, get everything set up. And with this, with, with, with COVID-19, I mean, you have maybe had a few weeks and businesses are forced to make a decision of virtually going out of business or adapting to the current environment and, and the way of life as we know it. Um, so a couple big challenges that come into place here. So first let's talk about BOPUS. So BOPUS stands for buy online, uh, pick up in store. And this, you know, furniture companies, 
probably you know small furniture companies if you have like accessories um if you uh home and goods stores um like home depot lowe's you know some of these curries um you can buy products online and you can pick up in store and they're seeing you know huge increases because people don't want to go in the store and there's limits for social distancing well the challenge with an increase in that type of transaction is there is a higher opportunity for fraud because the consumer of course can purchase online and Perhaps you don't have a trained individual that is checking their driver's license, that is making sure that it was their credit card. Um, and so often you have a lot of fraudsters that are taking advantage because they're making expensive purchases. And let's face it, job security is also at risk. People are concerned about, you know, if they have enough money. There's, there's more there's more criminal activity that's less sophisticated. So, you know, people are trying things out, seeing what they can get away with. And there's just, there, there's always been a huge amount of fraud with a buy online pickup store, you know, method. And that is starting to increase because of the lack of experience with these stores and also the increase in volume. And then the second thing that we're seeing a lot is with the quick service restaurants. So um, QSRs. And you know a lot of and and even you know similar types of business models where they haven't had a lot of exposure to running you know a transaction uh, on a on a on an app or just online through takeout methods and traditionally you know if you go through a drive-through restaurant then once you once they hand they they've actually charged and you received your food pretty much at the same time. If you walk into that restaurant, um, especially for fast food or quick service restaurants, then you pay for your order and then you know you get your food within a couple minutes. But it's pretty much like instant. And and so the issue is when you take that mentality, where you know to be compliant, then they're assuming hey we want to make sure that our customer receives the food at the same time that they're getting charged. What we run into quite frequently are merchants that develop an app, they start taking orders, and because they haven't had experience doing this, then they're actually pre-authorizing a certain amount in order to be compliant. So let's say I order a, a burger and I'm going to receive that in 15 minutes. Well, I could be pre-authorized, so there's $20 that may be in a, as a pending charge on my credit card. Um, well, then I receive my burger. That charge isn't released because the merchant doesn't know how to operate these types of mechanics. Instead, now I'm charged maybe $4.50. So now the problem is I go on my bank statement, I go online, I, I, and I look and I see, wow, you know what, I think that merchant, I think that... This, this restaurant just charged me $24 for a burger. And so now I'm gonna charge it back. And you know, there's simple little mistakes, but it's just, it's highlighting a naive environment where, you know, in, in other environments, that would that type of process makes sense, but it just helps to underscore how much change is really being forced, you know, in our environment today, specifically on merchants, who are making snap decisions, trying to stay compliant. Um, you know, there's there's answers to do that. You don't have to do a pre-auth. There's different um, strategies, but you know, it's these types of things. It's all those little stumbling blocks and trial and error that that are creating more opportunities for chargebacks, especially the unnecessary ones. You know, Monica, you mentioned something that uh, this chart really addresses here. Not only are merchants caught off guard because, hey, this happened like overnight. Within a, a week or two, all these changes happened. Well, the same thing happened to the consumer. When you start thinking about the consumer that can no longer go to that restaurant or the consumer that can no longer pick up things that they need to and they have to have delivery, um, this chart here is showing the increase of new users in these different types of industries. So the star says 50% of the increased usage is by new users. So now you've got folks that are unfamiliar with ordering online or using an app or those types of things. Combine that with the 
demand that was created at, let's say, the restaurant that had to happen quickly. And now you've kind of got this perfect storm where I got new users that aren't really familiar with it. I've got merchants that aren't really familiar with it. And the answer is call your bank, um, kind of the way that's happened. But I think these two things alone are causing an awful lot of uh, uh, chargeback growth as we see that going along. Well, I would, the I other would thing that, sorry, go ahead, Don, Greg. Um, just one thing to add to, to, to what Monica was saying. Something we've seen a lot of in the last two months is uh, merchants moving hard and fast into uh, card not present transactions, and with that, making some assumptions about Apple Pay, Google Pay, and other wallet type transactions. Um, at the point of sale, where the customer is there with the phone, there's a protection built in for you. Um, and there's been some assumptions made that that uh, protection applies equally to card not present transactions made using um, solutions like Google Pay or Apple Pay. That's not always the case, and and we're seeing uh, some businesses being caught out by that. So it's one to be cautious of um, as the the volume migrates away from face to face and into these new channels. You're absolutely right, Craig. There's a difference between um, I had I had a merchant one time say, "Hey, our app is secure." Well, there's a difference between a secure app and the management, like Monica was talking about, of the back end of that app. Um, we'll talk a little bit more uh, in our Chargeback University tomorrow when we start talking about fraud and front-end fraud systems, but um, that, is, that is a huge difference. When we start looking at the rise of chargebacks, um, <clears throat> the, the, the transaction volume and ratios don't hold as they have in historical norms. You've got frustrated customers that we talked about that they're they're just going to call their bank. Uh, we our research shows that less than 20%, around 16% of customers call the merchant first. They often call their bank first, and and uh, that's an issue. Mobile app online have all increased chargebacks. Merchants are experiencing increased criminal activity. No fraud outlet is going to uh, let a good pandemic go to waste they're going to continue to try and get into there and then customer support is overwhelmed when you when you start talking about customer support monica what does that have to do with chargebacks though <laughs> i think what doesn't it have to do with chargeback right we would we would like to hope that um that by giving excellent customer support you can avoid all chargebacks but uh, that, that's definitely, that's not the case, if, if, especially in this environment where you kind of have a double whammy with, you know, more financial insecurity, opportunistic consumers, uh, but also, you know, overwhelmed and stressed out merchants that, that just don't have the resources. So I do think that, you know, obviously if you, if you put your customer off, if you don't answer the phone, um, if you uh, if, if you're if you treat them poorly, then this is a sure way to increase your chargebacks. Um, a lot of merchants that we've talked to, uh, specifically in the travel space, uh, or merchants that you know they're they're just they're they're overwhelmed with the amount of refunds that they need to process. Um, so some of their strategies that have been more effective. And I'll just share those with you guys because I thought they were pretty, I thought that it was brilliant actually. But really when it comes to having the best customer service for the least cost that is going to, you know, kind of curb the, the growth of chargebacks in this environment, it's all about um, speed. So that means answering the phone quickly. And if you can't answer the phone, provide a message that's automated so that that consumer knows exactly where they can go or they can email. And then you could tie that to an automated email that gives them a reference number. Um, you could you know, expand an email service using uh, chat bots, but there's all sorts of software solutions that will help extremely you know, streamline the customer service inquiries in order to produce a fast response. And the number one reason why consumers will contact their bank, even while they're on the phone with the merchant on hold, is because they aren't getting a fast response. It's all about efficiency. 
In fact, the number one reason they contact their bank is for convenience across the board for a chargeback. Um, so if, if you can create a level of convenience and efficiency where you allow your customers to get in contact with you, address a concern, that doesn't mean that you have to press the refund button right that minute. If you have an overwhelming backlog of refunds, cancellations, if you're a travel merchant, you probably have you know, a number of systems and processes and simply giving a refund is not very simple. It takes time, um, but you can satisfy this customer and stop them from, and really discourage them from contacting their bank if you just simply let them know their request is handled, here's a reference number, this is what we're going to do, and you know your, your problem is solved, and expect results in X amount of time. That makes a so massive So you really difference. are just saying you want the customer to know they've been heard. Absolutely. This is what everyone wants, right? They don't, you don't need to have a long, drawn-out, 30-minute conversation. You, you, just, you, you want to be able to quickly respond and, and let them know that you're going to process their request. Even if that request is going to take you more research, at least let them understand that they have been heard, just like you said, and, and this is what you're going to do about it. Started because I think this uh, it was on my mind I think it's on a lot of people's mind is I didn't even know Microsoft had a fraud solution you know uh, uh, tell us about this Sandra uh, welcome to the webinar and and uh, tell us about this thanks Don happy to be here and that is a fantastic question so about four years ago Microsoft was um, experiencing crazy amounts of fraud and and so we decided to build something in-house. We had some vendors, but there were multiple vendors and nobody could really hit that sweet spot that we were looking for. So as you see on this slide, the, the types of volume that Microsoft as one of the top 10 e-commerce companies has is vast. So we, we do about a billion transactions a year um, on a normal year. But this year it has almost doubled. So, you know, the COVID response is something that we all need to pay attention to. But in a normal year, about a billion transactions, about 760 million active users for all of our, um, our, our products, our online stores, in product purchases, in game console purchases. As you know, Microsoft does own Xbox. And I'll go into some of those Xbox details a little bit later. But we, we fight about a billion dollars in attempted fraud every year. And we have about 500,000, um, I'm sorry, 500, half a billion free trial abusers every year as well. So, so we had a myriad of vendors trying to help us combat this issue and we just couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. So our executives told our engineering team, listen, we are Microsoft. You guys need to do better than that. Figure it out. So we, over the last four years, we've been using our product in-house. And just last year, we decided, well, our results are really astounding. We do have some secret sauce that we'll talk about later. And we decided to commercialize it last year. So it's now available for the public. We do have some, some wins under our belt. I'm very excited about that. But, but what is it, right? So that, that's the ultimate question. So basically, we call it Dynamics 365 Fraud Protection. You do not have to be a Dynamics user in order to utilize uh, DFP. So it's a cloud-based solution that's designed to help merchants decrease their fraud cost improve customer experience and streamline their operational efficiency. Now here's the kicker. We're using adaptive AI to understand the patterns about the transaction using a pre-authorization scoring methods and sharing trust knowledge with the banks. That is a game changer in the industry and I'll, I'll show you some points about that in a little bit. But the three components- So Sandra, say that again. Say that again, a pre-authorization score method Yes. So what what happens is that we we partner with the the leading global banks and we share our our trust knowledge. We share our risk score with the bank and they've learned to adapt 
our risk score with theirs. When we say it's a good transaction, they accept it. When we say it's a bad transaction, then the merchant no longer has to send it through, through the merchant acquirers and the processors and to the bank for it to flow backwards through the fraud provider to make a decision. So we're immediately experiencing an uplift in revenue because of we're saving those costs, those fees. So it's really, wow, that's, really special. That's quite a collaboration. Yeah, it's um, American Express, in fact, just put out a, a press release of how they're partnering with Microsoft um, for this product. So that that's a nice feather in our cap for sure. Yeah. So. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about about COVID and fraud and, and you know, not just what Microsoft as an e-commerce merchant is experiencing, but what Xbox is experiencing. And it's a very interesting point because, you know, we are a customer and a provider of the same technology. So some of these insights are, are really interesting when we're able to share with forums like this. So we really appreciate being able to, to be here. You can go to the next slide. I'll show you some things. So COVID has really changed the landscape. And, and we like to say that idle hands are the devil's playground in, in the Microsoft world. We're finding that as more players are stuck at home, we're seeing an increase in self-harm escalations. And it's very interesting because like kids and, and millennials, they're, they're calling in through their consoles and actually reporting self-harm. So it, it's really, uh, it's crazy world out there. We, we know that more kids are stuck at home and there's more opportunities for them to be abused. But on that, on that front right there, we're noticing that there's an uptick in refund requests and it predominantly stems from addiction um, unsustainable behaviors and remorse about making those purchases. So here's an example. It, this was actually a fraudster that called in to Xbox and, and basically they were saying, hi, I can't afford my Xbox Live anymore. I don't have a credit card or any money. Can you please give me a free month of Xbox Gold and I'll really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very young. I have no money and my parents don't have much money because of the coronavirus and they're spending their money on food. So when you look at empathetic risk analysts and customer service representatives, they think, oh my gosh, yes, I'll give you a free month. But what happens, the fraudsters are doing the calling in and they are now taking advantage of promo codes, free access, and then what they're doing, they're selling those promo codes within the environment to other people. So there's there's a, a an increase in sophistication on one side, but also a decrease in sophistication because people right now, they're not shipping their, their fraudulent goods anymore um, to, to reshippers and things like that. They're shipping it directly to their house because they figure nobody's gonna come and check. So it, it's a weird society that we're dealing in right now. We have empathy fraud and we've never heard of that before. So it's really quite, quite crazy times. You know, it's interesting. And Andy, I'm gonna ask you for a comment. Have you ever seen a, um, a, 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 a crisis that fraudsters don't take advantage of? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. It, it's it's especially in times like this, um, we, you know, we're seeing fraud just just really ramp up. I mean, they're taking advantage of, you, you know, merchants that are just completely overwhelmed. Um, you know, the, the manual review teams are just overbooked. Um, and, and so they know that. Right. And, and so they're going to come in and they're going to hit hard. Right. Uh, with with account takeovers, you know, phishing schemes, all of it. Um, so yeah, anytime you're going to have the chaos, uh, the fraudsters are going to ramp up even more. You know, I, I agree. And I think this next slide Sandra's going to talk about here, uh, gives us information on that, but a question came in that I want to hit up here and I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of an answer on it, but if you guys want to chime in as well, um, I've been in the fraud industry now, uh, prior to chargebacks 911, I was with a major fraud team, but for about 10 years and. You know, it's uh, the the question is, if the chargeback is true criminal fraud, will you win the dispute? And no, you won't. 
if it's true criminal fraud and you allowed a transaction to go through, then you as the merchant are 100% liable of that. And I think that is why it's so important to put the best technology up front so those do not get through because those are, those are the ones that you'll lose. You'll lose the fraud chargebacks if they're true criminal fraud. Any, any uh, addition to that, Sandra? No, I, I 100% agree with that. And, and right now is really the time to adjust to those fraud models, right? So it's not just the impact of COVID on, on things happening now, but what's going to happen as we reshape our economy? You know, if we look back at the evolution, then, you know, November 19th through February of this year, things look normal. And then March of this year, the false positives just went out of control. The spike is huge. But then you have to give way for the real fraud, for those chargebacks to manifest itself through the system. So it's it's crazy. You guys must be going crazy. You know, I, I hope that people are taking advantage of your services because th this is the time to do so. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, does this really surprise you, Andy, to see fraud like this? No, no, not at all. And, and you know, it's, I haven't looked at the stats as of recently, but I believe we're up 23% month over month um, since this has started. So we're, we're definitely seeing a huge increase. And, um, you know, I think, well, let's, let's continue. I don't want to jump ahead of us. So, um, I'm going to let you go ahead there, Sandra. We'll get to it. Okay. So it, it's not only uh, empathy that's changing behaviors, but work from home is changing behaviors. So as more employees work from home, the potential for internally sourced fraud has risen. And um, things are happening right now where we're seeing uh, lots of collusion going on, not just with customers colluding with each other in like the gambling or gambling space to throw matches but they're extorting other users and they're saying, well, if you don't pay me $50, I'm going to kill you in this game, you know, in this tournament. So it, it's, it's a different kind of, of fraud and collusion that's going on. But one thing that has really surfaced and that is the existence or the, um, the increase in professional refunders. And what that means is that as employees are working from home, they're partnering with other people who will take advantage of, of employee discounts. The employee are ordering things online um, and then at a discount and then they're giving it to the refunder groups. The refunder groups will then go to the stores as they open and ask for a refund. They don't have the receipt and then they will share the the refund amount with the employee and another aspect of this refunder is where you order let's say you order order a faucet and you're expecting it but then you you get it delivered or you say somebody stole it from your porch then you call the company and say my package was stolen or i never received the the spigot part of my faucet so instead of telling you to send it back, they're just going to send you, the merchant just sends you a whole new faucet. So then now you can go ahead and resale that on the open market. And so people are, are sharing fraud. They're looking for ways to make money. And it's not just in the refunder groups, but in social engineering. Um, Andy mentioned about account takeover. It's a huge increase right now in account takeovers and and as i said before they're using a myriad of of covid 19 excuses but also the bot attacks so it's very important to be to have that technology on the front side for you to be able to fight these things as they're coming through so sandra one of the things that um at least we're seeing on our side um in the chargeback side post-transaction is um an increase of folks um, and and I I hate to say bad things about it because we just heard the report today, what, 40 million people unemployed. Um, but what we get a sense of is people are looking at their visa bill, calling their bank and saying, well, I want to charge this back and charge this back as a way to, you know, reserve cash or bring more, you know, things back in. It sounds like that's the same type of thing that's happening here. Are these refunders? 
um, are these professional fraudsters? Or are these just folks looking to make a few extra bucks? What's your sense there? I think it's a combination. The the professional fraud rings have done this for a while, but we see an uptick in it for normal people and, and employees. We have a product, it's called a, a loss prevention product that detects anomalies like this. And some of our retailers are now um, interested in, in implementing that because it's going to help them to identify these things. Um, I'll give you a quick example in the airline space. There was an airline who had uh, an employee who the, she was enabling people to buy low cost tickets from like Long Beach, California to Las Vegas for $69. And then they would call her and then she would exchange those tickets for European flights. Over the course of two years, she cost that airline over $2 million. And if they had this a, a loss prevention product like like um, what I was referring to, they would have been able to find that anomaly in about two weeks and save them, you know, millions of dollars. So it, it's wow. it, yeah, it's amazing. There, there's so many new kind of fraud floating around out there. It's really difficult to find it, but once you do, it's also difficult to stop it without the proper tools. You know, it's interesting because um, in my experience is fraud is dynamic. It's um, it's like that half blown up balloon. You squish it one place, it comes up in another place. It really never goes away completely. It just changes its form and how it attempts. Um, so I, I, I see what you're talking about. You know, when we start talking about false positives, what I want to do is kind of put a, um, a, dis a, a, a description uh, of what a false positive is. Andy, can you give us a little bit, what do we mean by false positive as we, before we go into this? Yeah, sure. So, so let's see, a false positive is when you have a, a consumer that has a, you know, legitimate transaction and, and then it becomes flagged as, as let's say suspicious and, and ultimately uh, that, that uh, transaction gets shut down by the merchant. Um, and, and, and this creates a lot of problems. I mean, if we look at fraud tools, right, they're, they're, they're like a dial. If, if you turn them down and you relax them, you're going to get a lot more orders, but, you know, you're also going to let a lot of criminal activity in, where if you turn the dial the other way, right, and, and, and you make those filters really stringent, um, you're, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get less sales, right, and, and you're going to create more false positives, right, which, which, you know, some would call, let's say, an insult rate. Because at the end of the day, um, you're you're stopping that good transaction. You're insulting someone, right? And and the chances of that individual, that consumer, coming back and buying from you again, you know, after you 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 insulted them, is is pretty low, right? And in many cases, these will happen. The false positives will happen because let's say your your shipping address might not uh, match your billing address. I mean, there's a number of things that, that fraud filters will look at. So. You, you know, you have to be very careful as you're setting up your fraud filters to make sure that uh, that you're not shutting out really good orders. Yeah, this this you know, scenario ahead, happened. Um, so this actual scenario happened to me personally, and being it from the industry, you know, I could tell exactly what was going on. So at Christmas time, I my my sister in California has three dogs: a small dog, a medium dog, and a large dog. So I went to this pet website and I ordered three sweaters in three different sizes and my order was stopped. I was declined and I'm like, wait a minute. Why, why am I getting declined? So I, I called their customer service and they, they said to me, well, you were declined because you were shipping from Florida to California. I said, yes. And they're like, why are you doing that? Why did you buy three sweaters, the same kind of sweater? I said, it's Christmas. First of all, uh, my sister has three dogs and I was sending a gift and they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now you can go back and do your transaction again. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it again. You've lost it. You lost my transaction. So. You know, and it happens all the time and maybe consumers don't recognize it like we do being in the industry. But I remember, um, wasn't last year, I think it was 2018 Microsoft, or, um, MasterCard. Uh, I was doing a, a seminar with them in some city somewhere around the world, and they had a stat that said, we um, spend, I can't remember, it's uh, $10 billion a year trying to stop 
uh, a ten billion dollar problem of fraud, and we cause a hundred hundred billion um, dollar false positive problem. And so it, it's huge. It is huge. You spend all the money to get people to come to your site. They complete an order. They they hand you the money, and you say no. Um, exactly. And I like that insult rate that Andy's talking about. So I'm very excited to hear what the enhanced bank, bank data game changer, how that works. Um, so, Sandra, tell us about that. Sure. If you want to go to the next slide. So as, as I mentioned, uh, Microsoft works with several banking partners and we do data shares. And this is information directly from that banking partner. And they see the upside from using enhanced data and, and their words is it's game changing. So when they share um, data with their processors on the left hand side, you can see that that false positive rate has gone down like 36%. And the incoming fraud has gone down 6%. And when you look at the risk provider um, on the right-hand side, i.e. Microsoft, um, you're looking at the false positive rates decreasing 53%. It's amazing. And the incoming fraud level decreased 22%. But that's because they're using um, the partner risk score device geolocation, device uh, fingerprinting, and unique ID, and, and they're, they're looking at the patterns, they're trusting the score, that risk assessment that we're sending to them. And so the false positives are, are so um, decreasing that they really wanted to share this information with people. It, it's truly um, something that, that's amazing. If you wanna to go to the next slide, I'll give you a little bit more statistics here. Let's see as we go. So, um, you know, even the simple enhanced data element like accepting a, a risk score is significant implications for incoming fraud and false positive reductions. As I said, the, the, the overall decrease in incoming fraud that they had was about 7%. And part of that reason is we're helping the merchants not send the junk to the bank. The more junk you know, the more dirty laundry you send to the bank, the more conservative they get. And so um, they're going to they're going to decline some good transactions um, and the decrease in false positives. It, it, it's 32 percent. And that's based on using flat approved decline rules on top of the bank's existing decisioning rules. You know, so they were they were doing some control measures and, and they really found that sharing the data really helped them make better decisions in addition to to you know companies like us make better decisions for the merchants merchants you know overall benefit. you know this is doing something that i've touted for literally years and that's the collaboration um we're starting to see it at some of the card schemes with with programs like uh visa's got the vmpi program where the issuing bank actually imagine this actually ask the merchant for information about a transaction that's being disputed and gets it in real time nice. and can take a dispute and manage it instead of sending it through the chargeback process. That sounds very similar to what you're doing here. You're giving enhanced data to the decision maker so they can make a better decision, right? Exactly, 100%. So, I mean, that, that just makes sense. I think fraud is one of those things that it takes a collaboration between the merchant, the processor, the fraud vendor, the bank, and if we can collaborate with good data, we all get better better answers. That's right, that's right. And their quote was, you know, using enhanced data in our decisioning increases fraud captured at every decline rate. So if you look at the right-hand side, the enhanced data allowed them to capture more fraud while keeping the decline rates low because we're filtering it before it gets there. Um, and then the lower incoming fraud results in lower fraud resolution overheads, merchant chargebacks, and issuer write-offs, just exactly what you were talking about, Don. So the, the more data the bank has to make a good decision, it just benefits everybody all around. So, Sandra, I got a question that came in, and I, I don't know the answer to. Hopefully you do, and if it's something we need to take offline, we can. But the question is, are you sharing consortium data from all the banks, or is this specific uh, uh, information that, that 
you and your team have? That's, that's a great question. And we utilize our, our consortium data, our knowledge network, um, to create a risk score. We're sharing the risk score with the bank. So they're not seeing any additional PII or anything like no, that? Uh, we not. don't run into any other? Okay, great. Super. Um, let's, uh, let's keep going. Okay, so this I think is a great question because it's like Andy said is was that real fraud or did I insult somebody? True, true. And you know it's it's important to figure out if you have a false positive problem because exactly what the the person who asked the question, you know, false positives occur because the bank doesn't have enough information about a transaction. They may have the amounts, maybe the last four of a card, or it's very light, right? So it's important to have that knowledge network or the consortium network so you can identify who's a good customer and who's not a good customer. But, but what are some of the questions that you can ask your current fraud provider to figure out if you have a false positive problem? You know, what are the reason codes for their decisions? You know, it's important, we, we have a piece of technology that we go back in the model and we're able to, to pull those scores so we can share that with the merchant of why a particular reason was made. So that is something that is very important to ask what those reason codes are for that transactional decision. And then are, are your rule sets too strict? As Andy was saying, if you if you pull that net too tight, you are not letting the good positive transactions go through. You are stopping fraud, but you're not helping the merchant focus on pro what we call profit efficiency, right? We want to help them generate revenue. Every transaction in this time period counts. So when, when you're declining good customers that has a strategic impact, on the business, on the consumer, and on the bank. And then question number three, you need to look at what your bank authorization rates are compared to your rejected transactions, and then look at how many of those are actually chargebacks as well. 